0: Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with former CDC director Dr. Tom Frieden, CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, an initiative of Vital Strategies, a global entity seeking to save 100 million lives worldwide. He talks about their new report, Epidemics That Didn't Happen, which claims millions of lives could have been saved in this pandemic if countries were better prepared with public health infrastructure. He also addresses vaccine hesitancy and the proposed FDA ban on menthol cigarettes. Roy Robertson also checks in, managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the faith from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Tom Frieden here on Conversations on Healthcare.
1: We're speaking today with Dr. Tom Frieden, President and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, an initiative of vital strategies, which is seeking to save 100 million lives globally by addressing cardiovascular disease and preventing pandemics.
2: Dr. Frieden served as the director of the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and he was the health commissioner for the city of New York. Dr. Frieden, we welcome you back to Conversations on Healthcare today.
3: Great to speak with you. Looking forward to the talk.
1: Yeah, you know, and we really appreciated reading your uh, report, uh, Epidemics That Didn't Happen, uh, really, which I think makes a bold declaration that the COVID-19 pandemic could have been say, uh, prevented or contained, I should say. And the report highlighted countries that responded well to the pandemic, as well as the deadly outbreaks. What if you could share with our listeners some of the success stories and where, where things went off the track for others.
3: Well, the bottom line is that epidemics don't have to happen. And every day there are epidemics that are being prevented around the world. And we wanted to shine a spotlight on some of them. For example, monkeypox in Nigeria, where a single case led to a rapid alert. There were good guidelines in place. Uh, an intensive response followed. And there were no further cases. Or in Brazil, where the threat of a massive yellow fever outbreak uh, led to very aggressive, effective action to vaccinate. Or in Kenya, where a community volunteer recognized the risk of anthrax and stopped an outbreak there. These are success stories. And they tell us that epidemics don't have to happen, but only if we invest in it. We're going to need sustained financial resources, but also stronger technical skills around the world, as well as better institutions, a stronger WHO, regional centers for disease control, and stronger health departments in countries, states, provinces, cities, and localities all around the world.
2: Well, and Dr. Frieden, here we are today just watching uh, in horror at what's going on uh, in India. I mean, the news reports on a daily basis, just this raging surge of COVID-19 and the idea of hospitals collapsing, being unable to accept patients, uh, is, it's really overwhelming. We're seeing some of this in Brazil and Latin America, worry about variants, not enough vaccines. We would really welcome you laying out what should the global community be doing right now to address these hotspots around the world. We certainly want to prevent these in the future, but right now today uh, with what we're seeing in front of us around the world, what should the global community be doing IN YOUR OPINION?
3: THERE'S SOMETHING THAT EVERY COUNTRY CAN DO. FIRST OFF, WE HAVE TO RECOGNIZE THAT ALTHOUGH IN THE U.S. WE'RE TURNING A CORNER, Mm -hmm. WE'RE GOING TO SEE, AS I'VE BEEN PREDICTING SINCE JANUARY, MANY FEWER CASES BY JUNE WILL BE TOWARD A NEW NORMAL OVER THE SUMMER AND AT THE NEW NORMAL BY THE FALL AS LONG AS WE KEEP IT UP AND DON'T GET THROWN ANY WORSE uh, CURVEBALLS WITH THE VARIANTS but globally there isn't nearly enough vaccine and even if there were it wouldn't drive down cases fast enough that's why we need to first and foremost protect healthcare and healthcare workers mask up distance and avoid superspreading continue essential services including schooling vaccinate especially healthcare workers and the elderly and we have to learn and adapt the virus is learning about people it's adapting it's evolving, we have to learn and adapt also. And part of that means making sure that we avoid those super spreading events that we mask up and that we vaccinate as quickly and strategically as possible. But you know, what has me most concerned is that we don't have enough vaccine. Mm. And although there are rosy projections for 2021, the plain truth is that the manufacturers missed their target for 2020 by 96%. And current manufacturing is running at about a quarter what it needs to be. Mm -hmm. So what we think needs to happen is that all proven vaccines need to be scaled up as quickly and safely as possible in terms of production. But we especially need to look at the mRNA vaccines, particularly Mm -hmm. Moderna, which was paid for by U.S. taxpayers and that vaccine mRNA vaccines are kind of like an insurance policy against variants against production failures because mRNA production is more a chemical process as opposed to a biological process with uh, AstraZeneca or j vaccines, which is much uh, less certain. They also, mRNA vaccines, can be scaled up more quickly, maybe six months or nine months after starting. And they can be made in large numbers, and they're easier and easier to handle in terms of the temperature requirements. So we think there need to be manufacturing hubs in various countries around the world for global supply. That's our insurance policy because the pandemic won't be over in the U.S. until it's over globally.
1: I think that's such an important point that uh, it's planet Earth and and, uh, we all need to work together. But you say the United States was woefully unprepared for the global pandemic and that we lack the supply chain for PPE and hospital equipment, medication, vaccine productions, as you just talked about. Uh, were off and certainly the distribution of those. So many uh, of these limitations and shortcomings were revealed. And I guess what's next as we prepare for the next pandemic, which you say is absolutely a certainty and could be far worse. And I was just thinking, you were talking about the mRNA vaccine. Nine months also seems like a long time. is it that we can prepare for production on those? Because it didn't take long to develop it. It took uh, a while to produce it. Is that right? In large enough volumes?
3: Well, for the mRNA, even with a variant, we think it's just a matter of months before we could have a new vaccine. Already there are clinical trials on, of, of vaccines against variants. But the broader issue is preparedness. And that goes beyond vaccination. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's true that if we had global Uh, mRNA vaccination hubs. They could be a very important platform for future vaccine-preventable diseases, but we don't know what the next threat will be. We know there will be another threat. Maybe we Mm -hmm. don't get so lucky, not that this is lucky, but maybe there won't be a vaccine against it and we'll need to use treatment or other modes of prevention. The key is that we have a system that can find outbreaks rapidly when they first emerge, respond effectively and prevent them wherever possible. And we've proposed a global target for that that we call 717, that every outbreak of a new health threat anywhere should be able to be identified within seven days. Within one day, it gets reported, investigation begun, and response begun. And within seven days, effective response in place. If we do that, we'll be much safer and much more secure.
2: Well, Dr. Frieden, uh, one of the biggest COVID-19 challenges we faced here in the United States, no surprise uh, to you, was just how deeply politicized uh, this became. I honestly can't remember another situation quite like it uh, over the course of my career. Uh, We were so fascinated by the work that you did recently in the focus group uh, led by GOP pollster Frank Luntz and the de Beaumont Foundation, Uh, I think uh, described a group of self-described Trump voters. Uh, many of whom were very skeptical about the pandemic, skeptical about the vaccine, probably safe to say uh, resistant to getting the vaccine. Uh, Tell us what you learned from that experience. Did it surprise you? Was there new information that really changed the way you thought about this and and would approach this uh, going forward again?
3: Well, first, I think we have to put things into perspective. We think masks and vaccines are controversial, but actually, 80% of Americans have been wearing masks, and about 80% of Americans plan to get vaccinated. So we're not talking about a large number. In terms of vaccines, the problem of vaccine access remains quite a bit larger than the problem of vaccine hesitancy. Mm. You wouldn't get that from reading most of the news media, because frankly, hesitancy makes a better story than access. But access is a real issue, and access means hours, languages, uh, DISTANCE, CULTURAL SENSITIVITY, uh, GETTING VACCINE INTO DOCTORS' OFFICES SO IT CAN BE DONE AS A ROUTINE, MAKING IT EASY FOR PEOPLE SO THAT the IN PUBLIC HEALTH WE ALWAYS LIKE THE HEALTHY CHOICE TO BE THE DEFAULT CHOICE. Right. IT SHOULD BE VERY EASY TO GET A VACCINE. BUT WITH THE the GROUP OF uh, TRUMP VOTERS THAT FRANK Luntz AND THE DEBOMA FOUNDATION PUT TOGETHER, IT WAS REALLY INTERESTING TO HEAR THE EXTENT TO WHICH THEY FEEL SO ALIENATED from uh, the health, the the political system. They didn't want to hear about vaccines from any politician, not even from President Trump, of whom they think very highly. They want to hear about it from doctors. And there were certain messages that really resonated with them. Um, There's a lot of concern about vaccines. People think I'm putting this foreign substance into my body. And why was it developed so quickly? Mm -hmm. So there were some messages that really did make a difference. One of them was that if you get the virus, it's going to spread all over your body in billions of copies for a week or 10 days. If you get the vaccine, it'll be in your body for a day or so, and then it'll be gone. It will save your body the trouble of getting infected to learn how to fight the virus. We also had to clarify that the mRNA vaccines were not rushed to the market. They moved quickly, but not rushed. And they're not in a year. This is 20 years of research. And there weren't corners cut on safety. There were red tape cut. And that's why it was able to be brought to the market so quickly. Um, It's also really important to to make the point that nearly every doctor who gets offered the vaccine takes it. And this made a big impact on them because Mm -hmm. they trust their doctors. Doctors can be crucially important messengers, plus the quicker we get vaccinated, the quicker we'll get our jobs back, our economy back. And vaccinating can save at least 100,000 lives of Americans who would otherwise be killed by COVID.
1: We're speaking today with former CDC director, Dr. Tom Frieden, president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives. You know, I was, saw the recent uh, Republican ad made by physicians, uh, Republican congressional leaders, I believe, who certainly got that message out. And I think this work is so important that you're doing, even if it's 20 percent, it's an important group of people that we reach out to because it seems to be growing over time. uh, The folks who are having these feelings and it sounded like some of it was also around their sense of uh, of uh, maybe not libertarianism, but the sense of independence, concern for their body and purity and and other things. So there's there's such good work that's happening here. And I think it's so important to try to figure out how to translate that out into the field. Our, our own organization has given out about 400,000 vaccines. Uh, we know the importance of being everywhere. I, l- I love your new initiative that you have uh, diners, dentists, and dollar stores. Very important. We have our own, the ABC, amusement parks, beaches, and chambers of commerce. So we're all headed in the same direction of trying to pull everyone out, uh, together um, what what are walk us through some of your strategy to reach the, the hardest one translating in this particular group so that people who aren't uh, 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 aren't Republican congressmen and aren't physicians can also use this in the field uh, because we now have this difficult task of really reaching uh, consider and here we're here in Connecticut and have done a reasonably good job but there's a big number still to reach. Uh, And I think the public would appreciate to hear from you about a roadmap to get to that uh, final uh, hurdle, get over that final hurdle.
3: What we're seeing is the movable middle is moving. So the proportion of people who were not sure about vaccination, they're getting vaccinated. I think they'll increasingly get vaccinated. In fact, the number of people who are somewhat reluctant has steadily decreased. What we're left with are people who have a lot of concerns. And some of them are going to be very difficult to reach. Some of them won't be reached at all. Many of them will be reached by their doctors. And that's why getting vaccination into doctor's office is really important. Also, overcoming reluctance with convenience really works. So uh, it's a great idea. Amusement parks, beaches, chambers of commerce, shopping centers. Uh, there are lots of ways to make vaccine more routine so that somebody says, oh, I'll do this. Um, In terms of how to convince someone, I think that has to start with listening. Mm-hmm. What are their concerns? One thing we've heard on these focus groups is people really feel not respected and not listened to. And every group deserves to be listened to, respected. The fact that they have concerns validated, even if those concerns uh, aren't accurate or aren't fact-based. And for an issue like I'm worried about putting an impurity into my body and I want uh, freedom, I think what we have to think about is, what about the virus? That's a big impurity. And, uh, you know, if you're on a ventilator, Mm -hmm. that's about as far away from being free as you can be uh, and still be alive.
2: Really, really great points. You know, uh, Dr. Frieden, I think we first came to know uh, of your incredible work when you were the uh, Commissioner of Health for the City of New York. Uh, and the the work that you did around smoking cessation, which was just so so life-changing, really, in the United States. And we were very uh, happy to see the FDA just issued a ban on the sale of menthol cigarettes, which has certainly been also a contributor to some of the racial-ethnic disparities that we've seen. And smoking, and then uh, a little bit more good news. The Biden administration has just made it a little bit easier, maybe for um, frontline providers to participate in treating opioid use disorder with buprenorphine. Tell me, uh, or tell our listeners, why are these moves uh, so important? Addressing nicotine on the one hand, opioid addiction on the other, which remains such persistent and deadly threats to the health of the public.
3: Well, I'm, I'm really encouraged by these two moves, which both came in the past week. Yeah. I've been advocating for 15 years to do away with the irrational policy on buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is an opiate. It's the only opiate that is less likely to kill you or get you addicted than heroin. And yet it's the only opiate for which there were these extensive, cumbersome requirements to prescribe. It was completely irrational. I think well-meaning, but irrational. And so that has been largely done away with, not completely, but largely. And now many more doctors should be able to prescribe it. There's a misunderstanding here that um, buprenorphine just replaces one addiction with another. Buprenorphine uh, addresses a chemical uh, craving in the brain for opiates and people who are on opiates. And it's really important that it more, much more widely used. So that's a really big move. The second is even bigger. Menthol cigarettes are the major way that kids and especially uh, Black African-American people get started on cigarettes and banning menthol, which has just been announced. It hasn't been done. So it's got to get through the courts. It's got to get through regulation. But a big step forward, really big step forward, uh, is a huge move to continue action that can make tobacco history. We can have a generation grow up not addicted to tobacco. We can reduce health disparities because Of the huge amount of menthol because of the vigorous marketing Mm -hmm. by the menthol cigarette makers in black communities. Uh, So these are big public health moves. And I think with progress on uh, COVID in the U.S. and on tobacco, and we hope on opiates and other public health issues, we could begin to reverse what's a really bad reality in the U.S., which is that we pay a lot more than other countries for our health care. And we live shorter lives with more disability. We can reverse that. We can live longer, healthier lives and get much more for our healthcare dollars.
1: And in reversing that, save uh, tens if not hundreds of thousands of lives. You know, I want to get back to your thought about uh, how we might uh, proceed with the next uh, pandemic, which you say is probably uh, somewhere around the corner. We had a a 50-state strategy. uh, And I'm wondering if that makes sense to you and, and one sort of element of that, I'm wondering if you support giving vaccines to people, even if they don't live in the state, that they're receiving it. It seems to now what we have is the borders are drawn uh, around the state, and uh, uh, one state may be efficient, the other uh, less efficient, and uh, we've, we're, we seem to be narrow-minded in this. Uh, what, what's your thought about uh, how we might proceed in that area?
3: Well, as we look back at COVID, we'll identify many problems. Uh, in the in 2020, we saw the lack of organization, the lack of a plan, the lack of reliance on science, and uh, really poor communication. Uh, but even if all of those political issues had been addressed, there were pre-existing weaknesses, pre-existing conditions in the public health system, and one of them was the lack of good coordination among federal to state, and state to many city and local health departments. We have to have a more joined-up response, a more coordinated response. Uh, In terms of vaccines, we are increasingly having plenty of vaccines, and it should just be much easier for people to get vaccinated. We should do away with photo ID requirements for vaccination, we should do away with appointments and have walk-up increasingly, and uh, we should do away with residency requirements. However, we really need to double down on reaching the unreached. There are many communities around the U.S., urban and rural, Democratic and Republican, white, black, Latino, Asian, that don't have adequate access. And we need to do more to get ready access because the pandemic isn't over. If we keep at it, we should be in a much better uh, condition by the summer and at the new normal by fall in the U.S but globally we're looking at another year or two of a severe pandemic unless we do much better with control and with vaccine production and distribution.
1: Let me just ask about vaccine cards or uh, for travel restrictions, are you supportive of having some identity card uh, or vaccine identification for people in terms of people who are coming into the country and also for us traveling outside of it?
3: I first wrote on this a year ago. And what I said is they're inevitable, they're going to happen, so let's make sure they happen in a good way. First off, it has to be voluntary, opt-in only. Second, you have to control privacy so that your data isn't used for anything other than what you want it to be used for. Third, you have to have a a paper analog. So if someone doesn't have a smartphone, Mm -hmm. they should be able to have the same uh, privileges as someone who does. But Done right, I do think that vaccine verification or vaccine certificates can facilitate reopening. They can't change the unfortunate and tragic reality that we don't have adequate vaccine access globally.
2: Yeah. We've been speaking today with former CDC director, Dr. Tom Frieden. He's the president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, an initiative of vital strategies. And you can learn more about his very important work by going to -to ResolveToSaveLives.org, and please follow him on Twitter at Dr. Tom Frieden. Dr. Frieden, we thank you so much for your decades-long commitment to improving global health and well-being, for leveraging the tools of public health to improve outcomes, and for taking the time to come and join us today on Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you for what you do.
4: On April 23rd, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices voted to resume the use of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine with a warning that there may be an increased risk of a very rare but dangerous blood clotting condition. The vote came 10 days after the CDC and Food and Drug Administration on April 13th recommended, quote, a pause in the use, end quote, of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine out of an abundance of caution due to six reports of a rare blood clot combined with low levels of blood platelets among more than 7 million J&J vaccines administered. At the April 23 meeting, a CDC scientist presented nine additional reported cases, bringing the total confirmed cases to 15 out of nearly 8 million vaccine doses as of April 21st. Three of the 15 have died, and four were in intensive care. 13 of the cases occurred in women between the ages of 18 and 49, and two involved women between the ages of 50 and 64. These reported cases after vaccination with the J&J vaccine appear to be similar to heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, a condition in which the body has an immune response after a patient receives the anticoagulant drug heparin, causing both low levels of blood platelets and blood clots. One hematology expert told us there appears to be overlap between the two disorders. The 15 cases after vaccination in the U.S. represent nearly 2 in 1 million of the nearly 8 million J&J vaccines administered. Since 13 of those cases were among women under 50, the incidence would be 7 in 1 million for women ages 18 to 49. The FDA has added warnings to its emergency use authorization of the vaccine and its fact sheets for healthcare providers and vaccine recipients, saying the reports of these conditions suggest an increased risk of the rare blood clot combined with low levels of blood platelets one to two weeks after vaccination. The FDA fact sheet for vaccine recipients says, quote, the chance of having this occur is remote. The CDC, meanwhile, says, quote, women younger than 50 years old especially should be aware of the rare risk of blood clots with low platelets after vaccination and that other COVID-19 vaccines are available where this risk has not been seen. And that's my Fact Check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org
2: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. While the world grapples with a global pandemic, public health experts have been simultaneously battling another ongoing health threat. Mosquitoes are considered one of the deadliest animals on Earth, leading to hundreds of millions of illnesses and some 2.7 million deaths per year globally. And diseases such as malaria, dengue fever, and Zika are on the rise. So
5: there's this one mosquito called Aedes aegypti that transmits a range of different viruses to people. They include viruses like yellow fever, dengue fever, chikungunya, Zika, and the consequences can be very dire. from a loss of life through to, um, you know, crippling uh, social and economic cost.
2: Dr. Scott O'Neill is the director of the World Mosquito Program, which has developed an innovative approach to eradicating the threat.
5: I was particularly interested in this bacterium called Wolbachia. This bacteria is present in up to 50% of insects naturally, but not this one mosquito that transmits all these viruses. When we put the bacterium into the mosquito, the viruses couldn't grow any longer in the mosquito. So we're seeding uh, population of mosquitoes with our own, mosquitoes that contain Wolbachia. We're able to spread the mosquitoes across very large areas very quickly. Once the mosquitoes have it, they're protected from being able to transmit viruses. And when they're protected the humans are protected as well.
2: Dr. O'Neill's team released the genetically modified mosquitoes into a targeted area and the results showed a dramatic reduction in human infections.
5: In northern Australia we um, deployed the Warback here over quite large areas, entire cities, and we've seen essentially a complete elimination, 96 percent reduction in dengue in those cities. We believe if we can scale this intervention across entire cities we can completely prevent the transmission of diseases like dengue chikungunya zika
2: the world mosquito program is one of six finalists in the macarthur foundation's 100 and change competition which awards a 100 million dollar grant to innovative public health interventions
5: we're hoping that over the next five years we could bring this technology to protect 75 to even 100 million people and we would hope within 10 years we could bring this intervention to 500 million people.
2: The World Mosquito Program, an effective, targeted genetic engineering approach to eradicating the threat of deadly mosquito-borne pathogens, leading to a dramatic reduction in harm to public health. Now that's a bright idea.
1: You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
0: And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU, at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.